Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. At participating Wendy's for a limited time, meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii. Geico presents sharing versus oversharing. Earlier this week, Claire Tippins shared a princess nickname generator, three pictures of her dog wearing a tutu, and two online quizzes, including what candy is your dream castle made of? Claire, your sharing has tipped the sugar scale and turned into oversharing. But have no fear, princess. Geico has something worth sharing with your internet kingdom, like how you could save hundreds on your car insurance just by visiting geico.com. No magic wand required. Geico, 15 minutes could save you 15% or more on car insurance. Hello again, everyone. I'm Joe Longinusa, welcoming you to another edition of Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, the show where industry leaders, golf professionals, and legends all come and discuss the great game we love so much. So without further ado, let's turn it over to our host to tell us who's next on the tee. Chris, take it away. Hey, thank you, Joe. Hello, everybody, and thank you for coming back and joining me again on Next on the T. We know you got a lot of choices for shows and podcasts to listen to out there, and we really appreciate that you've chosen Next on the T to be one of them. I am your host, Chris Mascaro, and today I have two really great guests that I'm looking forward to sharing with you over the next hour or so. First up today is going to be former three-time winner on tour, once on what's now the Web.com tour and twice on the regular tour, Donnie Hammond is back with me. Not only was Donnie very successful out on tour, but he's also a Hall of Famer at his alma mater, the University of Jacksonville. We'll talk about his college career, his wins out on tour, his experience at the 1986 Masters, started the final round of the 86 Masters, one stroke off the lead and played in the second to the last group with Bernard Longer just ahead of Seve Ballesteros and Tom, uh, Tom Kite. So he had a first-row seat to history. We'll chat about all of that and more when Donnie joins me here in just a few moments. Following Donnie, you know, we'll get a return visit from a guy who's really becoming a weekly regular on the show, and that's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel. Sean's going to be back to answer more of your questions, share more of his insights, plus talk a little bit about what's going on on the tour right now. So uh, we look forward to having Sean uh, as a part of the show. He'll join me just a little bit later in this half hour. So if all of that doesn't warm you up tonight, well, our new friends over at Aroma Ridge sure can. They offer an array of the finest mountain-grown gourmet coffees all in one place. Their secret is hand-selected beans from a variety of coffee-producing countries roasted to perfection by their very own roast master in small batches for an even more clean taste and a cleaner roast. So you're going to love their coffee. They are roasted specifically for you. And when I say that, you know, you can, you know, you can pick out your, your brand, you can pick out your roast, you can pick out your flavor for crying out loud. They have almost every flavor you can imagine. Plus you can even mix and match if you want to create your own flavor. They can do that for you as well. And not only are their coffees great, but they're fantastic people as well. You're not going to find a better tasting coffee or a better group of people to deal with and work with anywhere on the planet than at Aroma Ridge. And right now they have their Valentine's special going on on their Wicked Jack's Rum Cakes. You can get a rum cake, you can get a chocolate rum cake, or even a red velvet cake. 20 ounces of deliciousness. Check it out, all their products. 
on their website, aromaridge.com. Next on the tee is also brought to you by our friends over at the French Lick Resort up in French Lick, Indiana. Folks, you hear me talking about it every single week. You want to talk about a spectacular resort to both play golf and to just relax and enjoy yourself. Well, there isn't a better place anywhere on the planet than at the French Lick Resort. Go to FrenchLick.com and see for yourself. And right now, let's hear a word from our friends over there. Now's the time to plan that golf getaway you've been dreaming about at French Lick Resort. We have new Golf Academy packages for 2016, guaranteed to take your game to the next level. Try our one-day Quick Fix Academy for golf emergencies. For more in-depth learning, try the Game Changer, designed to make you a better player. Our staff professionals are ready to work with you at French Lick Resort. Did you know there's only one place in the country that you can play courses designed by two members of the World Golf Hall of Fame on the same property? The Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses at French Lick Resort make us an ultimate golf destination for 2016. Check out the Ultimate Golf Package, the Hall of Fame Package, and other great offerings at FrenchLick.com. Let 2016 be that year you finally take your dream golf getaway at French Lick Resort. Play the courses champions play. It is a spectacular place, my friends. I had the privilege of taking my family there last June, and we're looking forward to getting back there again this year. The French Lick Resort needs to be on your list of places to stay and play. And oh, by the way, they have a casino right there on the property as well. For more information and to book your stay, go to FrenchLick.com. Also want to give a shout-out to our friends over at Allen Edmonds, maker of top quality made-in-the-USA shoes. Folks, the shoes of great leaders, from the Oval Office to corner offices to stage and screen and promising cubicles all around the country are part of what make people successful. The right footwear is important on the carpets and the hardwood floors of our global economy. Get it right with made-in-the-USA quality and value from Allen Edmonds. Allen Edmonds is an American original, but they've been making shoes right here in the U.S. in Wisconsin since 1922. They've got a winter clearance sale going on right now, some styles up to 40% off. Go see how you can return to work and get out there looking your very best. Check them out online at allenedmonds.com. And every week, folks, here on Next on the T, we like to kick off the show by saluting the brave men and women serving in every branch of our military. We want to thank all of you for the daily sacrifices that you and your families make to protect our freedoms and our liberties. We also want to thank our veterans for all you've done for us and your families have sacrificed for us over the years. It's through your strength that our military personnel keeps us safe and protects our way of life. It is without you, this our way of life wouldn't even be possible. Our sincere thanks as well to Sean Cruz and all the wonderful folks over at the Armed Forces Radio Network. It's an honor for us to have next on the TV a part of your network. You can find our show by going to armedforcesradionetwork.org. Also want to remind our veterans, be sure to check out globalvoiceforveterans.org. What a great site with news and articles and a wealth of information specifically designed for our veterans out there that I'm sure you're going to find both interesting and beneficial. Again, Global Voice for Veterans. Please check it out and then bookmark it. You're going to be very glad you did. All right, now joining me on the French Lick Resort guest line is Donnie Hammond. Let me remind you about Donnie's background. He was born in Frederick, Maryland, which is in the north, uh, northern part of the state near the Virginia and West Virginia lines. He attended Jacksonville University and was a four-year letterman on their golf team. As a sophomore, placed seventh in the 1977 Sun Belt Championship, and as a senior, he won it. 
He is a charter member of the Jacksonville University Sports Hall of Fame. Donnie earned his tour card by being a medalist at the 1982 PGA Tour Qualifying Championship at TBC Sawgrass, winning the event by a record 14 strokes, folks. He played on the PGA Tour from 1983 to 1998. He won twice on the regular tour at the 1986 Bob Hope Chrysler Classic and the 1989 Texas Open, uh, where he came within one stroke of their all-time scoring record, having shot rounds of 65, 64, 65, 64 at Oak Hills Country Club. He also won once on uh, what's now the uh, buy dot, or was the buy.com tour, now the web.com tour at the 2000 Lakeland Classic. Over the course of Donnery's career, check this out now, folks. He's had 46 top 10 finishes, and he, and he made the cut 70% of the time that he teed it up out there. And I am very honored to have him back with me tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Donnie, how have you been, my friend? Chris, I've been good. How about yourself? Ah, really well, thank you. So, good. Donnie, for, for our listeners, golf fans who aren't uh, familiar with the details of your playing career, you won some events by absolutely lapping the field, and you won some others in some close playoffs. So I, I wanted to start by kind of going back to your college days, Donnie, and, and, the, and the 1979 Sunbelt Championship, your senior year at the University of Jacksonville. Won the individual honors that year by six strokes over Chris Tucker, who was playing actually on his home course up there up in Charlotte. But curious to get your thoughts, what you remember about that championship? I'll tell you what I was thinking of that championship and that whole year, Chris. I was It was my senior year. I was a psychology major, and I don't remember being a lot of jobs, you know, in psychology unless you went back and got your, you know, your master's or, you know, Ph.D. So I was thinking, you know, Donnie, you're going to have to start playing some good golf this year if you're going to think of turning pro. So I got real serious that senior year, and I went into the that conference championship playing pretty well and just didn't really have any issues out there. Played, I don't think I had a double bogey the whole week, but – you know, played solid, won by six strokes, and it kind of gave me a lot of confidence to, you know, to end the year there at school and go on and, and start on the mini tour and then try to, you know, go to the tour school for a few years and get your tour card. So that was that was a big, big win for me that senior year. And, Donnie, you know, I, I typically talk to guys and, and hear them tell stories about Q School really being one of the most stressful events that they ever played in. And, and not only did you get through it, you lapped the field. You won by 14 strokes at, at, like I said, at the TPC Sawgrass. Talk about what that event was like for you. You're going to talk about a relaxed round or a relaxed tournament. Lapping the field that way had to be uh, very satisfying for you. Yeah, it was just one of those weeks. I don't know. I mean, you have it. I don't think I've ever played that solid over the course of four days. That was a six-round tournament, but it was, you know, I start out with 65 on the TPC course there at Sawgrass, and that was the new course wow. record and then played a few rounds at Sawgrass shot I think 71 68 uh had I think I was leading by 6 and then go back to TPC on a really tough day it was swirling uh the you know r- club selection was really hard that day and then you got to get through that 17th hole too the island green yeah uh end up end up shooting 66 that day and went into the press room and they said, Donnie, how's it feel to have a 14-stroke lead? And I just thought to myself, wow, that course was playing tough today. And uh, I kind of was able to coast the last couple of days, which was really important, you know, playing a treacherous course like uh, like the TPC there. You could make big numbers out there in a heartbeat. But so, that was cool. I got my card, and then, I, you know, I was able, 
that was the first year of the all exempt tour. So I was able to go out there and, and be in just about every tournament. It actually got me in the TPC tournament the next year too. I, there was no reshuffling or, uh, you know, no pressure to play well early in the year. I was exempt pretty much the whole year. So uh, that made it a lot easier to be able to keep your card, which I was able to do the first year on tour, which is really important. So going back to that tournament, Donnie, a couple of things that you mentioned. First, you, you mentioned swirling wins in, in one of the rounds. It's, I, I can't imagine what it's like with a swirling wind to stand on the 17th tee trying to figure out what you're going to do. <laughs> And, 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 you know, and, and if you've got people around and all that sort of, what, what, what's that feel like? What's going through your mind when you're looking at a swirling wind, and, you know, and nothing but a whole bunch of water in front of you? Well, if you're smart, after a while, you're looking right at the center of the green, trying to figure out what can I do to get it on the center of the green. I tell you, when it, the wind's not blowing, it's a little pitch nine iron or pitching wedge. It's, you know, it's not a tough shot at all, but when you get it, you know, wind coming off the right, coming back into you a little bit. You got your caddy there, so you, you know, you're working, you're working the yardage, trying to figure out what the hole's playing. But basically, you just try to hit it in the middle of the green. Whenever you've watched uh, the TPC tournaments and the wind's blowing, you know, the guys are trying to hit it right in the middle of the green if they're smart. And the other the other thing that's interesting is, you know, when you sit down in a press conference and, or, you know, and, and people are telling you, hey, Donnie, you got a 14-stroke lead here. You know, as, as a football fan, uh, you know, I don't know if, if you like – if you're a football fan too, I know I am. But, uh, you know, we hear so much, you know, hey, now now you're going to prevent defense, right, which prevents you from winning. <laughs> so when you got a 14-stroke lead, it, in your mind at all, are are you letting off the gas? Or are you just, you know, you know, hey, I've been successful making it, you know, this far, doing it this way. Now if I change and now I sort of play not to lose, we've seen so many guys, you know, on the tour that, you know, have had big leads and we watched them evaporate pretty quickly. How, how do you keep your mind in it not to let, you know, other people start to creep back into the tournament? I think the lucky thing for me is I was only about 24 years old. I didn't have a lot of experience. I probably wasn't that smart out on the golf course. So I didn't have to think that much about it. I was pretty much on automatic pilot that week. Uh, I kind of developed a little setup actually that the night before the first round that kind of locked my setup in. And that was a big key is just, you know, get set. I, I was tucking my right knee in a little bit. And my left knee was kind of going forward a little bit and I was just locked in. And, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of thinking I played, slightly more conservative on the weekend but but still you know I wanted to I didn't want to let guys back into the tournament when when I was playing that well and you ran away from the field again at the 89 Texas Open played at Oak Hills Country Club you won that tournament by seven strokes over the likes of Paul Azinger, Lanny Watkins, Hal Sutton, Davis Love, Hale Irwin, our friend on this show Kenny Knox was was there on the leaderboard and like I mentioned in your intro you did it by shooting a pair of 64s and 65s. So was was that a case? Was, you know, did the course suit your eye? And is that another place where you were locked in? Talk about that tournament. Yeah, I love. I just love playing in Texas. I've I've always really enjoyed going to the Byron Nelson, playing the Colonial. San Antonio was a great town. Great Mexican food there. I always had a super time there. And it was toward the end of the year, so. I think we might have even been partying a little bit that week, to tell you the truth. So we were, 
you know, I was playing well that year. It was just a fun week to go out and, and I just kind of got locked into, uh, my swing that week and just had the momentum going after the first couple of rounds. And then Sunday was just one of those days that, uh, you know, I was nervous early. I could feel my nerves kicking up, but I was able to get a couple early birdies and then it just kind of fell into place. Uh, I think I eagled the 10th hole and then I was up by about five shots and it just, uh, there wasn't a lot of drama on the back nine. It was really fun to be able to, you know, have a big lead the last, five or six holes and, and really enjoy it with your caddy. So just one of those weeks, I, I was a little streaky here and there. I didn't win too many tournaments, but you know, I got streaky and uh, played well some of the weeks on tour. And you mentioned, you know, feeling the nerves sort of kick up when that happens when you're out, uh, when you're out there, you know, on the golf course, what do you do to, to put that aside and, and focus on the task at hand? How do you not let that overcome you? I think two things are really important, whether you're playing in your club championship or you're getting ready to hit a shot in front of six-year friends that are playing right behind you at the country club. you got to pick out a really distinct target in the background, whether it's the left edge of the bunker, that oak tree that you aim at every day, when you, and then just go through your regular routine. And you know, to de- develop the routine, you have to do it on the driving range a little bit. You work on how many times you waggle the club, how many times you look up. You know, if you can get that down pretty consistently like Jack Nicklaus did for all those years and then pick out a target and spend a little more time looking at that target right before you pull the club back, I think it gives you a lot better chance uh, because then some of the negatives don't come into play like Mrs. You know, Roosevelt's house over on the right or that lake you always hit into <laughs> on the left. You just, I yeah. mean, you got things that, positive things that you're thinking about. So pick a target and go through your routine and practice the routine on the range a little bit. And Donnie, you were, you were also no stranger to playoff golf. You won several events via playoffs. We talk a lot on this show about the mental side of the game. How are you able to successfully deal in a, in, in playoff pressure to, you know, sudden death, whatever it was to focus, you know, on your shot, not worry about what the other guy was doing. Yeah, I mean, that was that was when match play comes in. And, you know, as a PGA Tour player, I think I only played in probably three or four match play events. I was close to getting on the Ryder Cup one year, but we had a match play tournament that we played that uh, out in Tucson. But it was, you know, it was strictly match play when you're out there with one or two other people. And for the one thing, you're playing well. If you're in a playoff, you've already played well in the tournament. You've played well the last round, so things are going your way, you know, you have a little bit of confidence and that that's helpful. And you just try to get through it. You try to, you try to strike early really because most of the guys are playing well. And a lot of times it takes a birdie on the first hole to win. So uh, you got to play a little aggressive. And Donnie talking about playoffs, you, you qualified for the U S open back in 2001 at Southern Hills by going through sectional qualifying and you qualified by beating Steve Please when you birdied the seventh playoff hole, but only after he missed a two-footer for par on the previous hole. Talk about, you know, the range of emotion. Did you lose focus? How do you, how do you get focus back figuring he's going to put this in, and then all of a sudden it doesn't, and now you're on to another hole? I just played that course just about uh, three weeks ago, Old Memorial, fantastic golf course in Tampa. Uh, it's just over there with some friends and Gary Koch was in the playoff. I think Gary birdied the first or second hole 
he knew the course. He was a member there. He went out and knocked in like an eight footer on the first hole. So he got one of the spots and then it was me and Steve and he was playing the mini tours then. And he missed about a two footer. And I felt so bad for him because I was thinking, you know, what a thrill that would have been for him to go to the U S open. And it really surprised me. I was getting ready to shake his hand and say, well done, good luck, make the cut, this and that. And then he missed the cut, missed the putt. And I think I birdied the next hole and, I drove back to Orlando that day, and I just I really felt bad for him the whole way uh, driving back. And you know, talking about you know pressure, you know, was there guaranteed money for you week to week when you were were out there and you were playing, or or was it when you were when you first got out on tour, or were you literally one of the guys who were sort of playing for meal money, so to speak, every week? Um, I had some pretty good deals out on the tour with sponsors, you know, winning the tour school, I had a great deal with Titleist coming out on the tour. I think pretty, pretty much of the time I had some good deals with Titleist, TaylorMade. I had, I was with Ritz Carlton for a little bit, Marriott Vacation Club. So um, I kind of had my expenses paid for. So I was able to, you know, try to, the the winnings that you would have on the tour would kind of be the bonus. And that made it a lot easier than, trying to figure how you're going to pay your expenses for the next four or five weeks, which is really tough if you, if you try to do it on the cheap out on the PJ tour, because you want to stay in nice hotels when you go to LA and, you know, Chicago, you don't want to be at the days in out there. You want to be at a nice hotel with great restaurants and really enjoy, enjoy it if you're going to play the tour, because you don't know how long it's going to last out there. All right. And talking about being with Idolist and, and TaylorMade, Donnie, was, was were those the brands that that you played coming up through? You know, as you were you know younger and getting through college and that sort of thing, or or did you have to make a switch once you actually qualified for the tour? Titleist went way back when I started playing with my dad. At, I was about 13 years old. He was always trying to find Titleist. You know, buy him from the little kid on the side of the fairway or you know, buy them in the pro shop. That was the ball, Titleist. So, you know, I kind of had a long history with Titleist. And then I think it started with TaylorMade when they developed the Metalwood, you know, that real little driver. Right. And that's when I started playing TaylorMade. They started making a pretty good set of irons a year or two after that. And they really took off with uh, with the Metalwood. But then they developed, you know, the top-of-the-line irons out there that were you know, as as good as anything you could hit on the tour, and and it's become a great company. Donnie, let's talk a little bit about the 86 Masters. It it, it may be the most famous event, a lot of people's favorite event in the history of the game. Um, You were actually one stroke off the lead heading into the final round, one behind Greg Norman. You were tied with with Seve and Bernhard Longer and Nick Price, three strokes ahead of Jack Nicklaus. You were paired with Longer. And the next to last group in the final round, what was that day like for you? It started out fantastic. Uh, being a fairly handsome guy, I woke up and I looked at the mirror. I saw myself. I said, Donnie, you are going to win the Masters today. And I drove to the golf course confident. Things were going well. I'd had 67 the day before Saturday. Uh, had a good pairing with Bernhard. I uh, had a good warm-up, I think. I can't remember. It was a long time ago. But I got on the first tee, and I could remember my right knee twitching just a little bit. 
and it wasn't supposed to do that. It wasn't doing that the whole week. And I thought, Donnie, we got to get rid of this twitch or you're not going to win the Masters. And, you know, it started out a little slow on the front nine. I mean, it was very nervy and it was a little bit slow out there that day. I remember that. But I got off to a little bit of a rugged start on the front nine and brought it back in two under. But, the, I mean, the electricity on the golf course that day was was like uh, – nothing I've ever seen on the tour hearing the roars coming from, you know, Jack's group and, and kind of catching up with what was happening that day. And you could see when his name hit the leaderboard and you saw what he was shooting, you, you know, I was thinking to myself, Jack thinks he can win this tournament. And then, I mean, it was just amazing to be able to watch it a couple months later and, and see how fantastic it was and how well he played. It was, uh, Really cool. It's nice to be part of it. I just wish I could have played a little better and been, you know, in a little more contention um, through the through the whole event. That would that would have been better. But I finished like 11th and got invited back the next year, so it wasn't a total loss. But it was a little disappointing for a few days after that. What was it like for you the night before? Did you did you sleep like was it normal? I'm thinking you know you're one stroke out of the lead. You're in the second to last group. Do you, do you sleep well, or is that something that, you know, kind of keeps your mind going all night long? Yeah, I can't remember, but I, I can't imagine I slept really well. I'm sure I'm sure I woke up a few times. Uh, I remember feeling pretty good that morning. So, But, I mean, you're relaxed uh, because coming off a good round, you're kind of relaxed up until a point. And then the next day you wake up and you start thinking of, you know, how serious a day it is and, what it could mean to you if you could go out and shoot three under and it's, uh, you know, it gets, it kind of hits you pretty hard there. That was my first year there. And it was, uh, you know, I was a little nervy on the front nine and, but luckily I brought it back on the, on the back. At what point did, uh, did you guys become aware that, uh, that Mr. Nicholas actually had gotten himself into contention? Well, let's see. I think we would have been probably about the 10th hole Jack would have been, he would have been probably three strokes back of Seve. And then, uh, but then when he made that eagle on 15, we were probably over on about 12, the par three. And you could, so we were close to where Jack, when he made that eagle. And that was just, I mean, I I could tell that was an eagle for Jack on 15. Uh, And then you could hear the shot on 16 when he hit, you know, he hit the, I think it was a six iron in there about three feet underneath the hole. And then 17, you could hear the birdie there. So pretty much knew what was going on um, there with, uh, with his last three or four holes. It was, it was pretty cool. And I, I had read a a story that there were only about 50 people in the gallery around uh, Norman and, and, and Nick Price because everyone was, you know, kind of shuffled ahead to to either watch Jack and Sandy Lyle play or were uh, right behind you guys uh, with Ballesteros and Kite. What what was it like being being in the in the second to last group? Was was there a sea of people kind of ebbing and flowing as Nicholas was getting done, and then you know with uh, with uh, Ballesteros and Kite? Yeah, they were leaving our groups in droves. The uh, the last two groups, and and you could see people. You know, when you would hear a big roar, another 20 people would leave your gallery and, and start heading over to where Jack was. And that was, uh, but that's kind of the way it was, 
you know, when you played with Jack, he always had the biggest gallery and, uh, you know, you would hear the name Jack all day, people yelling to Jack and, um, you know, that's the way it was. And there was a lot of people moving in his direction there, uh, the last six holes or so of the tournament. Did you get an opportunity to play with him? Yeah, I played with Jack a couple times, two or three times on tour. We played played at Oakmont one year, uh, the U.S. Open, and played, um, let's see, we played uh, Bay Hill during the last round one year. <clears throat> played a practice round with Jack one time at the Honda, and he, he holed two shots from the fairway in nine holes. Wow. Hold like an eight iron. And then on, I think it was the eighth hole, par five, into the wind, he holed a nine iron. And he looked over and said, that's the first time I've done that in a while. Hold two shots in nine holes from the fairway. I'm thinking, yeah, me too, Jack. <laughs> he was <laughs> he was something else. He was quite a ball striker. It was amazing to watch him play. Donnie, your best finish in a major was a tied for fifth at the Open Championship in 1992, which was played at Muirfield over over in Scotland. Nick Faldo ended up winning that event. You shot 65 in the second round to get yourself near the top of the leaderboard. What do you remember about that weekend? Well, that we I went over and had to qualify for that tournament. We Larry Rinker and I kind of traveled together, and we both qualified, so we had to rent a flat near the golf course. We ended up getting this great little place, walking distance to Muirfield. And we were together the whole week and we got good practice rounds in. We had a few pints every night to keep ourselves, you know, accustomed to the locals. And it was kind of fun (laughs) to kind of head to the little pubs and get the bar food and hang out with the folks and, and get a feel for the, you know, the communities around there. It was just I mean, that was one of my favorite tournaments, playing the Open Championship over there. I got I got to go over, play five times, and it was, I mean, I loved it every year I was over there. And uh, that, I mean, it was just a great layout. Muirfield is probably my favorite course in the rotation there uh, in, in Scotland and England. It was uh, just a beautiful golf course and, and tough. And, and it was just one of those weeks that uh, I kind of kept it together. I had my coach, Phil Ritson, over there for the week, and we had a nice time, and it was um, just a great week. And, Donnie, you came back and, and you got a win on the on the Buy.com tour in, in 2000 at the Lakeland Classic. How satisfying was that for you to come back after after that amount of time and get a win? It was good because uh, it was one of those weeks where my family ended up coming down on Sunday and got to see me win a tournament. So it was it was really cool. They kind of surprised me and kind of walked the last nine holes of the tournament and ended up uh, winning on the last hole there. And we had a nice little celebration that night. We drove back to Orlando and had a had a big table at this Mexican restaurant. My mother and father-in-law came over. My mom was over. We had a big, uh, big party there. So it was, that's the way you like to win a tournament have your, you know, friends and family with you that night. And it was, it was pretty, it was pretty fun. It's nice being so close in Lakeland too. And Donnie, from, from listening to you, you know, you share your stories. It seems like as, as much fun as you, you had playing the game, it seems like you almost had at least as much fun, if not more fun, you know, at the events 
themselves, whether it was like you just described, having your family there at, at the at the Lakeland Classic, or, or the guys you got to to be around and enjoy some of the locals at the events. Is that is that an accurate statement? Did you enjoy the 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 event, if you will, just as much as the golf? I think it would be fair to say, Chris, that I actually enjoyed it more than the average pro out there uh, every week. Yeah, I was I was a fun loving guy on the tour, and and I mean. It, it's hard not to have a good time on the PJ tour playing fantastic golf courses. You know, the range balls are great. The greens are quick. Uh, you're in, you know, you're in good cities and the, and the tournaments do a great job. There's entertainment here and there. And, you know, you got the bright lights. Sometimes you're in Las Vegas and, and you're young and you can stay up late at night. So it's, uh, you know, it's, there's a lot of good times to be had out there, especially if you're, you know, you're having a little bit of success and making a little bit of money. It makes it all the all the better because, you know, that, you know, it's a, it's kind of a career that you just never know how long you're going to be able to play on the tour. So, you know, you want to go out there and enjoy it as much as you can. And, but the, yeah, the traveling I always enjoyed. I I played a lot overseas. Went to Switzerland and Australia and just. You know, every chance I had to travel and go play in different countries, I pretty much took it. It was, it was a lot of fun to see the sights and to be able to play on some different tours. So that that was really fun for me. Donnie, just a couple more before we let you go. You were an inaugural inductee into the University of Jacksonville Hall of Fame. What was that like for you to be recognized like that by your alma mater? It was nice. Um, you know, I just, I think when I was up there, I gave a lot of credit to my coach, Raleigh Rourke. He was an athletic director there at the school. Uh, he was a basketball coach. I don't think he could have broke 85 as far as playing golf, but his, you know, his regiment for us to train us and get us ready for tournaments was, you know, it was kind of on the military side almost. He had us out jogging and running after Christmas and, you know, really getting in shape. And that's back in, you know, 1975 or so. Uh, so I, I gave a lot of credit to him. He was around the area there for 40 years. And uh, it was, it was satisfying to be able to, you know, be able to get into the hall of fame. That was probably one of the first, you know, small awards or whatever that that was given to me. So I, I took it pretty serious and, it was really satisfying to to be part of it because I had a great four years there and uh, just a lot of fun. And Donnie, for our listeners on the Armed Forces Radio Network here, you you've done a lot of work with the USO down there in Orlando. Talk about the things you do with them. Yeah, I just uh, I got to do a couple trips over to Iraq with uh, Rick Kell. He was he's with Troops First Foundation. David Faraday's also. Uh, co-founder of that group and we got to take a couple trips over to Iraq and visit the soldiers uh, a couple different years like I think it was 2007 and 2009 um, give a lot of exhibitions over there little putting contests but just you know have a friendly face to be able to visit the guys and you know let them know what we were thinking about and how proud we were of what they were doing and that we realized the sacrifice that they were going through uh, being over there a year at a time. And uh, it was a blast really seeing the guys. Cause I didn't think a lot of guys would come out and, but we had big, you know, big groups. Uh, every, every base we went to, there was, you know, quite a, quite a group out there and we would, 
I'd get to hold their weapons while they hit shots and things like that. That was pretty cool. They're heavy too. Some of those rocket launchers and things. You got to be strong, man. I mean, I'd have to start lifting weights to be a soldier because golf clubs are a lot lighter. But, um, I mean, it was fantastic. I've I've always had a, a real appreciation for the troops and the soldiers, and uh, it's just it's only gotten deeper as I've gotten older and 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 see what they have to do and what the families, um, you know, what they have to go through. But the families are amazing. Uh, that you know the support that they give uh, their loved ones too. So it's it was probably the trip of a lifetime for me to be able to do that a few times. That's great, Donnie. Before we let you go, remind our listeners how they're able to follow you uh, either online or over social media. Well, let's see. I tweet every now and then. I'm at at Donnie Hammond. And then DonnieHammond.com, I just go to, I do a lot of events during the summer. I'll go give speeches or do some pro-ams here and there and just uh, try to have a good time at, at, at events, corporate events. So it's been fun. I'll, I'll be playing the Champions Tour a little bit this year trying to qualify. So I got a few more years in that, I hope. So, yeah, I look forward to folks coming out every now and then if I get in a tournament. That's great stuff. Donnie, thank you so much for coming back on the show with me tonight. You're you're fantastic. I hope you'll come back and do it do it again sometime. I love listening to to your stories and your experiences. It's it's a lot of fun and we've you know, I've always enjoyed uh the times that I've gotten the opportunity to speak with you. Well, that's that's really nice, Chris, and I appreciate it. You're a great host and you got a great show. I'll do it anytime. I appreciate that very much. Donnie, and uh, we look forward to hopefully that gets uh, that gets rescheduled soon. But in the meantime, best of luck uh, to you, and uh, hopefully we do get the opportunity to watch you a bunch on the Champions Tour this year. And uh, all the best to you and family. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Chris. Bye bye. All right, take care, Donnie. That's the three-time winner out on the tour, including the buy.com, Donnie Hammond. And, uh, boy, you want to talk about a guy who, uh, who you know, like I say, a couple of tournaments, ran away, absolutely ran away with a couple of tournaments. And then, uh, you know, a couple of, uh, you know, playoff victories as well. And then uh, a front seat to history at the 86 Masters. Boy, it doesn't get a lot better than that. All right, folks, we've got our next guest, uh, Sean McKeel, hanging on the line. We're going to get to Sean on the other side of this station identification. You're listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro. Heard around the world on the Armed Forces Radio Network. All right, now back with me to answer more of your questions and to share more of his stories and his insights on the French Lick Resort guest line is our good friend, 2003 PGA champion, Sean McKeel. Hey, Sean, how are you tonight, my friend? Hey, good evening. How are you? I'm fantastic, thank you. How have you been? Good. I've been great. It's chilly here in Tennessee. we got uh, our first little winter advisory tonight, so it's uh, kind of bone-chilling cold. So I brought the... uh, I brought the sticks in to, uh, to keep them warm tonight. <laughs> Trying to be nice to them before the year really gets going, you know. There you I'm go. Maybe setting setting the the bar a little high, but you know, going to start out treating them nice. We'll see what happens through the year. But uh, anyway, so how was the good. hunt? I All know good. you were telling me over the weekend you were out hunting. How'd it go? Uh, it's been you know it's been a very slow year in Arkansas for duck hunting. You know I I've been doing this a long time. It's just something I enjoy. But it, uh, 
you know, we've had so much rain uh, in the Mid-South, and uh, the state of Arkansas is really kind of, I'll say, just kind of underwater. I've got a couple of FedEx buddies that are flying, and every time they fly over Arkansas, they stick their phones up and take pictures of all the water. So that's not always great for duck hunting. But, you know, I'm enjoying that because uh, my, my father's probably not going to hunt anymore beyond this year. Uh, you know, he's 73, and um, we decided that we would try it one more time and uh, hunt together and, and uh, just kind of, uh, you know, spend the time uh, just, you know, hunting, of course, but reminiscing and, and just kind of doing fathering stuff, outdoor stuff. And uh, so that's what we're doing. We're enjoying it, but it's just been kind of a slow season. And, Sean, before we get into all the golf this week, I want to I get your thought, talk a little football. You know, the season isn't, you know, the NFL season isn't over yet, and already people are talking about the NFL draft. Mel Kuyper's come out with his first-round mock draft this week. We've talked yeah. about how you support the University of Memphis and their sport, sports programs living there in the city of Memphis. And their star quarterback, Paxton Lynch, who signed with a good friend of ours on the football side, signed with Lee Steinberg mm-hmm. as his agent. Uh, I saw a picture of him wearing a Dallas Cowboys hat on the day the uh, day he declared for the draft. And uh, you know now he's, he's from San Antonio, so I don't know if he's subtly putting it out there that he'd like to be the next Cowboys quarterback i think kuiper has him going 15th to the rams but um thoughts thoughts that you have about you know paxton lynch and and where you'd like to see him end up in the draft i know the the cleveland browns have the number two pick and i'm knocking on wood that he doesn't end up uh in that disaster up in cleveland but what are your thoughts where are you hoping he goes well you know i don't know i did see that same picture and uh it's hard to say i mean obviously needs have to be uh filled you know by these teams but uh They've been such a disaster up there in Cleveland. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. I think the fans have been very supportive, but uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I think the excitement of being drafted and getting an opportunity to play professional golf is, or I mean, you know, football is definitely something that guys are looking for. Maybe in the in the beginning, in the initial stages, it's kind of like, I don't care where I'm playing as long as I've got a guaranteed contract. You know, I'm going to get a chance to learn. I think once people get up there, I really feel like they have these they have desires to play certain places and uh, uh, everybody wants to be on a winning team. And, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, Tony Romo is still their, their, their quarterback. I mean, history has shown just a lot of injuries. It's a rough sport. I don't know how much Tony's got left in him. Um, but I mean, at least if he goes to the Rams, he's going to be playing you know, in warm weather. Uh, of course he would have been playing in the dome in St. Louis. I mean, I kind of feel bad feel bad for St. Louis losing the team the way that they did. I saw right. some comments that the mayor made, um, you know, but uh, it's unfortunate that it is big business. And uh, but as far as Paxton goes, I mean, I think he'll just be happy to be uh, to be playing in the NFL. And, and uh, I know he'd love the opportunity to, to play right away. I, I, don't, I don't, of course, don't know if that's a good thing or not, not playing that sport. But uh it is exciting, and it's exciting for the fans here in Memphis to have a have a guy like him. Really, the last player that I remember of any significance that's playing any time minutes is D'Angelo Williams, and unfortunately, he's kind of been hampered, uh, you know, through some injuries with Carolina, and then of course he missed the last two recent games, of, you know, um, you know, with Pittsburgh. So, um, you know, it's uh, it's great to see that uh, that Paxson is going to get an opportunity and. Heck, Mel Kuyper, if he likes you, you're doing something pretty special. <laughs> yeah, and you don't have to uh, mention the D'Angelo Williams thing. As a Steelers fan, we uh, 
we sure wish he was uh he was playing this uh this past weekend uh we might still be alive if uh if he had been out on the field yeah i know and it's just too bad you know i thought that you know he had that foot injury i thought he was just gonna miss the one game i was actually surprised that he missed missed the denver game but you know you see it um it's really in, in the nfl you see these injuries um and it's unfortunate um because the fans i'm not saying they deserve to have the best product on on the field because everybody understands the injuries but um nfl certainly and tv probably most importantly and well besides the teams um really uh want to present and want to have the best product on the field um and look all the guys that are playing in the nfl are good players um and so um but i think the teams want the more experienced player out there playing and uh for ben roethlisberger to be able to get out there and play with the injury that he suffered a couple of weeks ago to his shoulder and we saw that the other night. Look, the very first the very first play, Ben Roethlisberger threw it, what, 50, 60 yards in the air. Now, it was incomplete, but I think he did that on purpose. I mean, yeah, if he, he catches one, he catches somebody asleep, he might get it. But he set, he set the standard there in the beginning that he was healthy. And, and uh, these guys play through uh, an unbelievable amount of pain um, to get out there and produce for the teams. Um, so um, hopefully Paxton will be able to get with a team that's uh, – has a good offensive line that supports him, allows him to uh, to use that arm and that and that brain of his because uh, he's got both. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see where he ends up. But uh, you know, uh, from from what I got to see of him this year, and obviously you saw a whole lot more of him than I did. Uh, you know, particularly up close and personal. But uh, yeah. boy. He, he looks like a you know a talented kid and a, and a franchise quarterback, and uh, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing where he ends up dra- you know getting drafted, and then from there about what his development looks like. But he certainly put the University of Memphis football team on the map. He did. Well, you know, it was unfortunate is that uh, I think mean, I told you this last time that we went to the uh, the Birmingham Bowl and right. um, got a chance to watch him play Auburn, and Auburn really kind of manhandled him from the from the start. It was. You know, a defensive touchdown by the Tigers there in the first half. And I think it was 10, 10 and a half, if I'm not mistaken. But they really kind of overtook the game. Uh, it's just unfortunate that, that Paxton didn't get to play his last game with his head coach. Now, I know that the offensive guy was kind of his handler all year. But, you know, for Justin to, to just leave and, and uh, everything else, when, when, you know, I understand why he did it. But I think Paxton, he just didn't have a very good game. And I think a lot of that was – Kind of like, well, coach left, and and I know I'm going to leave, so I may be looking further down the road. I was, I was just happy that he was able to play the game without getting injured. So, um, you know, but he'll be just fine, and I don't think that anybody will take. We'll look at that last game. I think though, there's a lot of things that the NFL will take into consideration. You know, when when looking sure. at Paxton, and you got to look at the big picture of of how many great games. I mean, he had less than what, five interceptions, probably. Um, for the whole game, maybe six. Um, it's a pretty good stat considering he threw it a bunch. So, uh, I mean, you know, he'll be just fine. Sean, um, I was looking over the weekend. You know, you look at uh, at the Sony Open out in Hawaii. Fred Funk, VJ uh, Singh both had strong showings out there. And VJ's just shy of his 53rd birthday. Fred turned 60 in June. When you see guys who compete, you know, at that level and play that well that are, you know, at their age, does that help boost your confidence and let you know that, uh, you know, guys in the 40 and even 50 to almost 60-year-old range can still compete out on tour? Yeah, really, sure it does. Um, You know, Fred, 
you know, is an unbelievably straight hitter. You know, he's been plagued with some injuries over the last few years, um, you know, but the experience level of playing that tournament and, and, of course, that golf course, yeah, if you hit it long, it's one thing. But, uh, you know, they had some rough out there. And, um, you know, again, as I said about football, I mean, experience is key. So, uh, you know, VJ, never, nothing ever surprises me with him, as hard a worker as he is. Um, you know, he's, um, you know, his drive and his desire to compete at the highest level, I think, is why he hasn't kind of given that up and gone to the champion store because he uh, he still hits the ball plenty far. And, uh, you know, putting, is it kind of comes and goes. Um, it's probably more so as you age. But, uh, you know, just watching those guys get out there and compete, they love it. I know how much Fred loves uh, Hawaii. He takes his whole family, you know, and uh, – uh, just really loves it out there. And it's one of my favorite events, too. I uh, I really have always enjoyed playing the Sony Open. I remember it was the first event that I played as a professional on the PGA Tour, and that was, what, 1994. And I, it hasn't changed. I mean, they've changed the par, of course, but from a 72 to 70. But, um, you know, as far as those two guys, I think they just, they just love being there. They love competing. Uh, they know the course well. Uh, it's a great, great place to start the year. Um, and, you know, for Fred and, uh, you know, and VJ maybe, I don't know who's entered, is, you know, they got this the Champions Tour event kicks off at, the, at Hawala Live this week. So it was, a, it was a perfect stopover for Fred. Uh, I'm only assuming he must have gotten an exemption. I don't know if he's still exempt on tour or, or not. But uh, uh, it's always inspiring to see guys um, continue to compete. And, by the way, I didn't realize that Fred was almost 60 years old. Um, yeah. That's that's surprising to me. But, but uh uh, that he's still out there and, and competing as well as he is. But um, you know, kudos to him. And, Sean, you know, we, we talk about, you know, the importance of driving distance. Yet, you know, we saw we saw Jordan Spieth, who, whose average di- driving distance a couple of weeks ago at the Tournament of Champions, 284 yards. Yet he still goes out and wins that event by eight strokes. And I know Jordan is an extraordinary talent. But I think that shows that there are other ways to win besides just simply overpowering a golf course. I was curious to get your thoughts on, on what you saw out of Jordan a couple of weeks ago and, and, and his win there, plus the idea that there's more to it than just being able to drive the ball 380 yards. Well, first of all, the, the, the driving stat is a little bit misleading um, because they only do it on two holes. They do it on one hole in the front and one hole on the back. Okay, Is that so right? They try to, yes. There's only two holes. It's not based on 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 every hole that you hit a wood, on every hole but a par five, okay? So the driving average is only taken on two holes. That's the first thing, you know, and if if, if you go out to a hole and you're playing one dead end of the wind, um, you know, and then all of a sudden maybe the next hole you hope to get it exactly downwind so you kind of even out, you, you know, you, you, could, you could miss hit one and hit it 240 or 250 and it just it messes your whole driving stat up. So, that's a stat to which I never uh, cared anything about. I mean, I I knew to myself that, um, you know, if I hit a good drive, and I knew in my mind it was a good drive, and I walked out there on either side of the fairway, there's paint. It starts at about 240 or 250. Every 10 yards, it probably goes up to – well, now it probably goes up to about 340. But, when, you know, when I was playing more regularly in the mid-2000s, I mean, I think they stopped measuring at, uh, you know, at probably – I don't know, 310, 320 maybe. Um, 
so yeah, that, that's the first thing. But yeah, I mean, look, you can play play the game, and and uh, you know, the game comes down to it's not so much even about fairways anymore. Greens and regulation, I think, is the biggest stat. Was was always my important stat. And putting and chipping. You know, there, Jordan was talking about how much time he spent practicing his wedge game. It showed. I mean, he hit some great shots in there. He hit a great one there to finish it off. He's up by seven. He could have easily just, ah, just get it onto the green. But what did he do? He hit a nice 60, 70-yard shot in there to about four or five feet. Um, you know, and so, uh, you know, some of the shots that I saw him play were uh, pretty, you know, just the touch shots around the green, just the accuracy. And, uh, you know, so that's really where the game is going and lost. I mean, uh, guys, there are guys that hit it long, and uh, you certainly have shorter clubs into the game, into the greens. But uh, you, you just got to have a total package. You can't just you can't just be focused on one one aspect of the game. But yeah, so so for people that don't know that, yeah, you, they on one hole they do the driving distance on the front and one on the back, and then they average the two together. Wow, that's so you know he did it two eighty four. Yeah, so he at 284, that's a pretty good average. Because, again, you know, they I think they they had some wind out there, and I don't know how the wind blew. I think someone was talking about maybe the Kona winds, um, at least for one or two of the days where one was into the wind and 18 was into the wind. Um, you know, so that's kind of that west wind that you get. Um, you know, typically, you know, 18 is downwind, one is downwind. They're both going the same direction there. But um, So, yeah, that, that's how it is. So 284 is not – not too bad. I don't know what the leading uh, you know, distance, you know, if Bubba Watson, if he if he got it, or J.B. Holmes, or whatever. But um, you know, I think, and he was sharp too. He he, he you know he, he commented that he he stayed very sharp through the off season. Um, you know, some guys like to enjoy their time off a little bit more in in, in the Christmas break, and uh, not that they don't play or practice, but I think we did see that Jason Day did say he took did he say he took nine weeks off? But I think that's what I was right. reading. So. Uh, my uh, actually might have been Padre Harrington. They were doing some big interviews with him, so might have been him. But but uh, you know, guys will take the time off, and and uh, I think you see a lot more of that with the older guys. You know, the younger guys they're they're chopping <laughs> the bit. I mean, they got a club in their hand every single day, and that's those are the types of things you got to do to to maintain a high level, especially coming right out of the gates. And Sean, we had a, a couple of listener questions this week that I wanted to to make sure we got to. Um, and the first one is, based on weather conditions, will you use a different type of ball, even if it's a different uh, style of ball for the same manufacturer? No, I don't. I don't. Uh, you know, it's hard enough to kind of figure out one ball. Um, you know, there's been there's some talk of that, um, I think, during the, the Ryder Cup um, because uh, they don't play with the one ball rule. And, and even so with the PJ well, the PJ championship for sure, they don't have the one ball rule in effect. So you could theoretically tee off on one hole with a tide list and then the next hole with a you know, a Bridgestone or Taylor May or Cal or whatever. Um, no, I just have always played with one ball. I just uh, uh you know, I mean I when I tee off I go I go into the locker room, I grab nine balls, I mark nine balls up and, and just go out there and play. Um there aren't enough conditions that really uh, would cause me to even think about that. Um, you know, those are those are that's that's a lot why you have to uh, you know why you have to uh, really have all the shots. You know, your knockdowns and and be able to kind of keep your ball low into the wind and 
you know, it's just I don't think anybody really gives that any type of consideration. It's just it's uh, hard enough to kind of figure out what one ball is going to do, and, and uh, so <laughs> I've, I've never really. I'm I've sure that's really true, and that I guess the, the the only thing that would strike me is, you know, if you're playing at you know at the Open Championship, and all of a sudden, you know, it gets cold. You know, and yeah. you know maybe a a lower compression golf ball might feel a little better to you than than a higher compression golf ball because of you know the, just the the temperature. Uh, you know, yeah. I, that never comes into play I, for you. No, I mean I don't know how much you would actually gain from that anyway. I mean I I certainly have never tried it, and you know maybe there have been some that have. It, it's uh, I don't feel that the benefit, um, particularly you know using a golf ball that I'm not used to, and and that just it just brings into a lot of a lot of problems, and you know, um, <clears throat> carrying multiple balls, you know, in your golf bag, it just it just creates a, a situation that's uncomfortable for the player and the caddy. Uh, you know, if you're playing the one ball rule or something like that, and you pull out, you're using an X versus a, the softer Pro V or whatever, and you just hit yeah. the wrong ball. So it's just um, I don't know how much of advantage you get, but you just to me, it's not really worth it, and. Uh, you know, to try to, to try to really experiment because that's not how I practice. Um, you know, but um, you know, it's uh, it was interesting though that Phil was talking about in the PJ was, was since I didn't play the one ball rule that uh, he thought about maybe using a, a one ball in one hole and one on another. So uh, he's about the only guy that that would even think of something like that. Sean, our, our other question is. We always hear about the Players' Championship being the unofficial fifth major. Do the players actually feel that way? Well, it is uh, a tremendous field. I don't know how it stacks up um, to the other major championships. I'm, I'm kind of tired of the, the fifth major. There's never going to be a fifth major. Um, you know, the, the Players' Championship is, a, is an unbelievable event. It certainly rivals the majors and probably even more it probably is number number five. I mean, it falls. I mean, it falls definitely ahead of the World Golf Championships. Um, you know, there's a limited field events and stuff like that. But but uh, I think the players the players recognize the challenge of the golf course. The field is is incredible. I don't. You know, DJ last year had what 99 of the top 100 players or something like that. So um, I would say that the Players Championship equals that, if if not surpasses that. So. Um, it's a it's a great event. You know they've they've done a lot of things with the golf course by, uh, you know they redid uh, you know put the put the uh, tournament back into May um, to allow for just natural uh, growth of grass rather than having to overseed like we always did in March. You know in March back when we played it was it was a heavy overseed with really deep rough overseed greens. Uh, and it was a it was a great it was a great product that the tour was putting out, but I felt like there was just too many there were too many delays, um, you know, and so regrassing and um, those types of things really kind of enhanced uh, the event. Uh, we you know you see that it's it's obviously a hugely important event on the schedule because you know the purse it was the first purse I think that went to ten million dollars, um, mm-hmm. which then kind of made people kind of think, wow, I mean, we're playing for more money than we are in some of the majors, or really all the majors. And I think the major championships have caught up to it now. I know the PGA is at, is at $10 million. Um, but, um, yeah, players think it's very important. It's a huge event. But, 
you know, we get asked that all the time. I'm, like I said, I'm I'm tired of hearing it be called the fifth major. It's just uh, it, it, it's a standalone tournament for sure, but it's uh, um, it's it's not. So I, I don't even. I guess I've never even thought of it as that. And speaking of of that event, you finished tied for ninth in in 2004. There, you bounced back from a second round 76 to shoot 69, 67 over the weekend. Talk about you know where that tournament for you, just as in the in the 04 event, where does that fit? You know, when you think about the highlights that you had in your career, finishing in the top 10 out of players. Yeah, well, I mean, very very much so. I think I think a lot. It's very high up there because. Uh, you know, my family was there, you know, my wife's uh, brother lives there, and uh, so everybody was out. Um, you know, on Saturday, I got paired with Marco Mir, or not Marco Mir, I'm sitting here watching him on TV. Um, I got paired with Nick Faldo, and, and uh, I think I beat him by a couple shots on Saturday. And then Sunday was really marked by my birdies on the last three holes. I had I had some craziness happen, happen to me that week. Uh, Ian Poulter and I think we're, we're playing on uh, on Sunday together, and this this actually this has shown quite a bit um, on TV. Although I haven't seen it recently, we were playing on the fourth hole, and uh, Ian had hit a putt down there and was really kind of ticked off about it. And he marked his ball and he just swiped it off the green. He was so mad. I suppose he's just picking it up. He just swiped it. But when he did that, he threw it into the water. Now he's left, and his mark is sitting there on the green, and he's got no ball. Now, of course, you have to finish the ball, finish the hole with the ball that you've got, okay? <laughs> so so he ends up, his physio, his physiotherapist gets into the water, takes off his clothes, and my wife's delight, of course, <laughs> and gets into, the, gets into the water. Now, the water's three, four feet deep. It's not a really deep pond, and he finds the ball. It's like the first ball that he found. And um, so that that was yeah that was that was one day and then on the eighth hole, I hit a ball in the bunker on the right. I think I hit a three iron in the face of the bunker, and I almost lost the ball. And uh, in so doing, uh, we finally found the ball in the lip of the bunker, and I had to take an unplayable eye, and was unable to rake the bunker, which was a which it took us I don't know how long it took us to play the hole because I was arguing with the official because I thought that you were allowed to fix the bunker because I was in search of a ball. Both Ian and I were in search of a ball, but they determined that because we couldn't we couldn't figure out whose footprints were mine and whose were Ian's, I had to play the ball. So I ended up having to take an unplayable lie, drop the ball, got it up and down, made bogey, went on, and then and then promptly birdied 16, 17, and 18 on Sunday to to kind of finish ninth. So it was a it was a, an event that I think about often. Really, I really do. I uh, the finish, especially you know they they uh, uh, three really difficult holes. Um, you know, with the crowds and of course the Island Green there on 17. But it was just kind of a crazy Sunday. And uh, no doubt, uh, it, it, yeah, it was fun. It was fun there because I had my whole family there and. Uh, you know, as I heard Donnie was talking about having his family there when he won, uh, you know, it's special. It really is. And it was for me, too, because, uh, uh, you know, there's been a lot of conversation pieces about Ian and Mark and his ball and, 
and almost losing his ball, my ball bearing, and, and then burning last year's hole. So a lot of things that happened to us in, in, in five hours around that place. But uh, <laughs> it, it really it really is a special place. It really is. And it's a great event. And, uh, and, and just going back to your earlier question, I think it, it just doesn't have the history behind it. I mean, it's a great event. It's an unbelievable event. It's obviously the flagship event of the PGA Tour. Um, and, uh, you know, look, ninth is as good as I was ever able to, 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 you know, to finish in that event, but, uh, so many great memories and, uh, the crowds down there are, uh, hugely supportive, just fun to play in front of. And, uh, and by the way, I love Ponte Vedra too. So, uh, I maybe could see myself there in a few years. Sean, a couple more before we let you go and talking about special events or great events, you've got. Arnold Palmer's tournament at Bay Hill and Jack Nicklaus's event at, at the Memorial. Outside of, you know, now the, the five, if we talk about playing in the majors and playing in the players, where, where does getting the opportunity to play in Arnold and Jack's events rank? Well, you know, uh, Arnold's tournament and, and Jack's tournament, they, they, uh, they're very special. It's, uh, it's always exciting to, uh, to pl- I guess, you know, to play – uh, alongside them, if you will. Um, I know Mr. Nicholas a lot better than I know Mr. Palmer. I just have done a few things with Arnold and, uh, of course, I know Jack as I was with his management company and Gary and I played against each other in college. And, and uh, you know, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, Jack and I played as my first really official practice round with Augusta. We played together in 2004. But, you know, two golf courses that I think Arnold has really struggled with uh, maintaining a golf course uh, to the level of, you know, kind of the standard of the PJ Tour. And there were a lot of things that, you know, maybe the greens weren't quite as good. Um, of course, the event is being, you know, it's held in March versus Jackson. You know, his is in June, you know, right there at the end of May, early June. Um, so you have a difference in just in weather. Um, you know, there was a lot of complaining, I think, from the players about the greens. But over the last few years, um, I think a lot of those kind of things have been put to bed, and Arnold has an unbelievable, um, you know, facility. People come out to support him. He's done so much for the game of golf. So the guys that play and the memories that I have are really um, – there is something to guys playing because of what Arnold and Jack have meant to the game. And, uh, um, and so the younger generation – I don't know if you'll see that so much. I mean, I think maybe players will still look at it as um, an, an event with a huge purse and, uh, you know, and being an invitational, um, you know, gives you more FedEx Cup points. But I think for those of us that kind of grew up watching uh, Arnold Palmer and Jack Nicklaus play golf and knowing what they meant, that's, uh, uh, you know, that's, that's, you know, that's why I played. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed, uh, you know, getting a chance to have lunch with Jack and, and, uh, you know, picking his brain a little bit, but both golf courses are just um, have really kind of come into the forefront with difficulty. Um, but it was always uh, it was always special to be able to play in those events, and uh, uh, got a lot of memories, a lot of great memories from those two as well. So you know, Sean, when I think about you know Arnold and Jack, and and obviously Gary players. You know, they're sort of golf royalty. I mean, they've been, they, you know, they've been the big three for you know fifty, sixty years now. And then when I think, when I look forward, you know, when, you know, 
30 years from now, I mean, you know, Mr. Palmer is 85 years old, you know, or 87 yeah. years old, I think, and, 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 and Mr. Nicholas, you know, 77, and, and Gary's in his, you know, in his 80s. And we, as we project, you know, one day when, when they're no longer with us, and who, who are the next guys? You know that would be somebody that you know, we would revere like that, and I'm not and I'm not sure Tiger Woods is going to re- reclaim that. He might, you know, but you know, who who are the next guys that you know when we when we think you know whether it's our children or this generation of golfers, the the young guns now with this with the Speeths and the Days and the Ricky Fowlers and and you know and that group and the Rory McIlroys. You know, as as those guys get to you know forty years old, are, is there going to be a a group of guys that they that they look at as the you know that you know sort of Arnold, Jack, and Gary you know hand off to somebody, some other twosome or threesome that are, are revered in the way that they are? Uh, I, you know, look, they're trying to do that right now with the comparisons between Jason, Rory, and Jordan. You know, with the way that they're playing, but really, Arnold, Jack, and Gary are the PJ Tour. I mean, if it wasn't for guys like that, the PJ Tour never probably would have would have succeeded. Um, right. You know, so I think we have a lot of uh, those three really to thank for the greatness of the game. Um, you know, these other three guys. I mean, they seem to have their head heads on straight and have a good perspective of the game and what it what it means to be playing for as much money. As they are, and and I, I suspect that they all, you know, they appreciate what guys, you know, like Jack and Arnie and and Gary have done for the game, but also what Tiger's done. I mean, Tiger's forty now, and Jordan's twenty two. I mean, right. um, you know, it's it's so hard to look that far into the future to see. But I think really, I mean, Jack and Arnie, those three guys, will always be mentioned with, um, you know, growing the game. Uh, basically leading to all the successes on the PJ tour. I mean, you know, of course there's there's business decisions that have to be made, but as far as creating an interest in the game from 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 fans, uh you know, I'm not sure you're ever going to see anybody eclipse those three guys. I mean, um you know, Tiger uh you know, will will certainly be there, um but he didn't do for the game what what the other three guys did. You know, um, Arnold yeah. was very personable. So was Gary. Jack was more kind of more like Tiger, I think, in the way that they thought and the way that they prepared for the game and uh, maybe their goals and stuff. Um, you know, but you know, it's so hard to say. It really is. I mean, uh, some of what happened. You know, obviously the the money. Uh, Jack and and uh, Gary and their career money has probably already been eclipsed by Jordan, um, you know, in just a couple of <laughs> yeah. years on the PJ Tour. So when those guys, you know, think about golf and think about the riches, they better they better pay homage to 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 Gary and and Arnold and Jack um, and and uh, and many others. I mean, those three are guys that that you think of the most. Um, but there's so many so many players that have, have paved the way for for us to play. I mean, look at the minorities that played Lee Elder and um, Charlie Siffer and those types of guys that, that allowed, um, you know, kind of the minorities It really, really um, opened up to, to uh, uh, the game to everyone. So um, those are the three guys we pay attention to. And uh, in 30, 40 years, you know, the generation that follows, that follows Jordan and plays along with him, you know, they'll think of him as the big three. Like I said, most of these young kids, um, you know, I don't even know when Jack quit playing professional golf on the PJ Tour. It had to be, 
1990, 91? I mean, was Jordan even born then? I mean, I don't think Jordan was born <laughs> then. He was born in what, 2000 or 1993 probably. You know, so I'm not even sure he got to see Jack play a, play a PJ Tour event. So, um, you know, I don't know. I think, uh, like I said, those guys have their heads on have, have their heads on straight, and, I, and there's no doubt that they give a lot of credit to these guys that, that came before them. So, um, you know, but uh, it's a great game, and there's a lot of us that owe a lot, a lot of thanks to a lot of people. That's right. Sean, before we let you go, 2016, you got uh, events coming up on your calendar. What's ahead for you? Oh, everything's on my calendar, but you know, just to whether or not I get to participate in those things. You know, I'm uh, I'm going down to South Florida here in a couple of weeks, and I'm going to spend some time uh, getting in shape and uh, getting my game in shape and, and trying to get a, a good plan together. I was talking to an instructor today that's going to come down for a few days um, and uh, try to help me get on, on the right track. Um you know, it's it's time that, uh, um, you know, I start putting forth a little bit more effort. Not that I didn't last year, but I think just mentally, um, you know, I kind of get into that first year of effort, the heart surgery, um, and, and seeing how, how I responded to that. I did very well with that. So, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to enter, um, hopefully, to play Puerto Rico. Hopefully, that'll be the first event that I get into. Hopefully, I'll get into it this year. Um but I'm going to work hard on my game and, and, uh, you know, enter, I've entered most of the events and uh, I'll do some Monday qualifiers and probably won't write for any exemptions. Uh, you know, I, I haven't gotten an exemption in a, in a good while. So I, uh, I probably won't write for too many, if any, um, you know, so I'll just try to try to, you know, get back to playing golf and earning my way, which is, uh, it's kind of what I've always tried to do anyway, but, it's hard to say. It's frustrating being non-exempt, but uh, um, kind of getting up there in age now, and and uh, I'm starting to see the writing on the wall, um, you know, so to speak, with the PJ Tour. But I'd, I'd certainly like to give it one more year. I'd love to have one opportunity to play one more year on the PJ Tour and kind of just mentally say goodbye to each of the courses that I've, I've played. I'm, I'm not ready for it to be over. Um, you know, nobody really is, but. Uh, uh, when it's time, I guess I'll, I'll recognize that. But for right now, I'm still, still, you know, working hard to get out there and play some great golf. And, and, and after that, you still got the uh, the Champions Tour. So uh, I, I think you're a long way from from being uh, done out on uh, on the collective uh, professional golf tours. Yeah, well, that's you know, somebody asked me yesterday if if uh, we're talking about the PJ Championship and really how long I was going to play and and. You know, I made mention that the uh, the 2023. It's hard to believe it's that far. Is the uh, will be 20 years since I won my PJ. It's back at Oak Hill that year, and so I've kind of thought to myself whether or not that would be, uh, you know, the end of end of my PJ championships. But I'm, I'll only be 54 then, so I, I doubt that I'll be done then. But uh, certainly, it would be a, it would be a great place to end uh, my career. Um, you know, but, uh, but we'll see, but I, I, uh, you're right. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm planning on playing the champions tour and, and, uh, and competing and, and, uh, and all that. So I look forward to that. And, uh, you know, for right now, I got to still got three years for that. So I've got to focus on kind of the here and now. That's right. 
Sean, before uh, we let you go, remind our listeners one more time how they can uh, follow you uh, online and over social media as well. I'm at Sean McKeel PGA for Twitter and uh, just Sean McKeel there on uh, on Facebook. And, of course, you can find me on LinkedIn. And, uh, again, as I always say, happy to uh, entertain any, any questions that come my way. I appreciate that very much. Sean, thanks uh, for taking time out of uh, out of your night to be a part of uh, the show with me again uh, this week. Hopefully, uh, we'll get to catch up with you again either this weekend or as your schedule allows. But uh, it's always uh, a privilege for me to get to spend some time with you, my friend. Well, I appreciate it, Chris, and uh, uh, I always enjoy spending some time with you and, and, and your listeners as well. So appreciate you having me on. All right. Take care, Sean. All the best to you and your family. Look forward to catching up with you again real soon. Sounds good, Chris. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. All right, take care, Sean. That's 2003 PGA champion Sean McKeel, and uh, it's always a privilege to to get to spend time with Sean. And, and folks, you know, a lot of people around the media want you to believe that Sean uh, was a one-hit wonder, and we've talked about this on the show before. But let me recap for you one more time. From 2000, uh, from 2000 to 2007, we all know Sean won the 03 PGA Championship at Oak Hill. And three years later, in 2006, at Medina at the PGA Championship, he finished second to Tiger Woods. He had he had a third place finish in 2002. So when you look at uh, you know his uh, win at Oak Hill in 2003, it wasn't like he came from out of absolutely nowhere. In all, over the eight-year stretch of 2000 to 2007, he had 17 top 10 finishes, 48 top 25s, and he won over $7.3 million. And then again, he had some injuries. You heard Sean mention a moment ago about a heart condition. Came back from injury in 2010 and had three more top 10s and five more top 25s and won a million dollars, over a million dollars that year as well. So, Sean, as uh, some uh, media members would have you believe, being a one-hit wonder, not not the case in the least. Great player and a great guy. All right, folks, it's uh, time for me to put a, a, a bow on this episode. Before we close up shop, I want to remind you about our friend and new partner over at, uh, over at the uh, Salute, Military Golf uh, Salute Military Golf Association and PGA Tour professional Jim Estes, who's been on the show several times, and we love having Jim as part of the show. Let me uh, let you hear a little bit from Jim about what he's doing over at the Salute Military Golf Association. The Salute Military Golf Association was created to provide rehabilitative golf experiences to the brave men and women who have been wounded while serving our country. Hi, I'm Jim Estes, PGA Golf Pro and co-founder of the Salute Military Golf Association. With my adaptive golf program, we've successfully helped thousands of soldiers in their recovery, both mentally and physically. The SMGA has been providing family-inclusive golf experiences across the country since 2007. To date, the SMGA has equipped more than 1,000 warriors with properly fitted golf clubs and has extended its clinic series to more than eight chapter and affiliate locations across the U.S., If you are a wounded veteran interested in participating or if you'd like to learn more about the Salute Military Golf Association and find a chapter closest to you, visit our website at smga.org. We've seen firsthand how impactful golf can be in aiding one's recovery. The Salute Military Golf Association, empowering wounded veterans one fairway at a time. Visit smga.org. That's smga.org. Yeah, they're doing some amazing things there at the Salute Military Golf Association. Please, to find out more information on how to get involved, go to smga.org to see what you can do. 
All right, everybody, my sincere thanks to Donnie Hammond and Sean McKeel for joining me today and for making today's show, uh, show so much fun for me to be a part of. I hope you enjoyed it as well. I ask you, please, check out our sister show, Thursday Night Tailgate, with me and my co-host, Bob Lazeri. That show airs every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can stream it live on Blog Talk Radio. You can hear it on the Armed Forces Radio Network uh, as well. Uh, that show like this one, available on iHeartRadio, Spreaker, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player.fm, SoundCloud. We're all over the Internet. You can find us all over the place. And uh, on Thursday Night Tailgate, you know, we are uh, joined every single week by legends from around the NFL and the CFL as well. We're official partners of the NFL Alumni Association and Mike Ditka's organization, the Gridiron Greats, plus Warren Moon's organization, Sports One Marketing. So every week we have great guests. On that show, if you love the game of football, please check us out. You can check out this show and that one on Facebook. Give us a like. That's important to us as well. And this show, you can find us next on the T.net, ThursdayNightTailgate.com. From either site, you can stream or download any of our archive episodes for free, folks. Plus, keep up to date with who some of our future guests are going to be. Again, thank you so much for choosing to listen to Next on the T with Chris Mascara. I appreciate you guys the very most. Until next week, hit him straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the Tee with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA legends, pros and top instructors, and media members go to tell their stories. Join us the same time every Saturday to hear more stories about the game we love from the people who love sharing those stories with you. It's all about the great game of golf. It's all about the great game of golf. Hi, you've reached Burger King. To leave a message, press 1. Hey, Burger King, you want to drive biz? I got this idea. I'm a big fan of the way you cook your burgers, but what about chicken? So why not do a flame-grilled burger chicken? Burger chicken? How about we call it the new Flame Grilled Chicken Burger from Burger King. A savory Flame Grilled Chicken Patty topped with veggies on a toasted bun. Now just two for $5. Or mix and match with another delicious sandwich part of the two for $5 deal. The new Flame Grilled Chicken Burger. Only at Burger King. Limited time only. Price and participation vary. Hey, it's Flo, and this is my impression of a drill instructor directing a musical. Town hut! Get those tap heels in line and let me see those jazz hands! Are you bundling your home and auto insurance through Progressive? Can you hear me through those sequins? Bundle your home and auto through Progressive and save. Left, 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 and step ball change. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company affiliates. Home insurance provided and serviced by other select insurers. Adding the choice of a crispy chicken BLT to Wendy's 4 for 4 is the biggest thing since rappers trying to sing. I got me out and I sound like a robot. But do you like the sound of this? Wendy's 4 for 4 now comes with a choice of a junior bacon cheeseburger or a crispy chicken BLT. From Detroit to Macon, I keep it crisp like bacon. Both are topped with crispy applewood smoked bacon and come with four nuggets, fries, and a Coke for just four bucks. Oh, yeah. And participate in Wendy's for a limited time. Meal includes small fries and a drink. Not valid in Alaska and Hawaii.